0: come to John 5 here, and verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews. And you'll notice that nearly all of this section of John, in fact you could argue the whole of John, is based around the Lord's teaching and activities at the feasts. And even when it appears that that is not the case, you will find that the language is shot through with allusions to one of the three great feasts of Passover, uh, of Tabernacles, Um, or Pentecost, and I think that you should bear that in mind, that you've got a a three-and-a-half-year ministry that's recorded or presented by John under inspiration in terms of the Lord's activity at feasts, at at the three great feasts. When you come to the other book that John was inspired to write, uh, Revelation, I believe that you'll find the same. It seemed to me for a long time that the key to interpreting Revelation correctly is to understand that it's a cycle of feasts, of uh, allusion to the, the various uh, three feasts of, uh, uh, of the Jewish calendar. And when I think that's significant, and I throw this out really just uh, uh, for your meditation, is that I, I'm a futurist, really, in my, my view of Revelation, and I think that it is a prophecy of the final three and a half year tribulation during which time we who are the faithful will become very closely identified with the Lord Jesus because if we really are the last generation who will alive and be alive and remain until his coming we will never taste of death and yet we need to be prepared for that honour and I think that is why the final three and a half year tribulation is required and in that I see the connection between the Gospel of John and the the Revelation that we are being invited to see three and a half years of the Lord's ministry in terms of what happened at the feasts. Now he doesn't give commentary about what happened at every feast in the same way as there are some feasts that are sort of overlooked in the final three and a half year tribulation that you've got uh, predicted and outlined in in the Revelation. i just throw that out uh, just way of starters for those of you who might be interested in in working on that a little bit further so the theme that we've got here uh, as you very often get in John there, there's a miracle or there's something that's done uh, so an incident that occurs in the life of Jesus and then we have a long dialogue uh, a speech if you like that's recorded making allusion to the miracle that has happened or the incident that's happened and John 5 is a classic case of that, you have this blind man who is healed and he sat there by the pool of Bethesda underneath the five arches representing the law and he was there for thirty-eight years which is the number of years that Israel were in the wilderness and he's uh, unable to get himself into the, into the water in time to, to be cured. And Jesus uh, just cures him and says, sin no more, verse 14 lest a worse thing come upon you, and that is condemnation at the day of judgment. So condemnation at the day of judgment involves sitting there paralyzed and helpless, desperately wanting to be saved, but not being able to be. In other words, everyone who comes to the Day of Judgment and is condemned will desperately want to be saved. And that should for all time drive away any complacency in our minds and any thought that, well, I shall be just passive and indifferent if I, if I don't get, get in kind of thing, well, okay, so be it. That is not the case. Every single person there at the Day of Judgment will want one thing, and that is to be in God's kingdom. And so that should be really our spirit now, that one thing is important, and that is our eternal relationship with God. Because we ultimately kinda of come to the point where we stand before the day of judgment, and that is the one and only thing that's important for us. Now this man I who's healed, I don't have that high a kind of a view of him really, because for one thing, he's told to go and sin no more. So, there was an element of uh, moral failure in him. And he goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus, verse 15. And from then on, the Jews persecuted him. Well, maybe I'm being a bit tough on him, but I think that he, in a sense, betrayed Jesus to, to the Jews. So, he was similar, I think, to people who are hooked on, on uh, the lottery who think, oh, if only, if only, if only, I could get this wonderful prize, etc. Ah, but uh, life's against me, life's not fair. You know, society's full of those kinds of people who are waiting for this this great break in their lives, but they lament that, oh, it's not fair, other people always push in in front of me, etc. Jesus just comes and shows this guy an amazing grace, because this person clearly didn't believe, because he didn't even know the name of the person who'd healed him. So, this is how Jesus operates. He takes the initiative, or God takes the initiative. That is what grace is all about. It's not as if this guy was studying the Bible, and was uh, so righteous, and the rest of it, and that was sort of well met halfway by Jesus coming along and, and curing him. In this case it was complete grace, and I I think the uh, idea that there often is in Pentecostal circles that you need to believe and then a miracle will happen and if miracles don't happen well that's not the fault of the evangelist that's the fault of the person who doesn't believe enough. No this is nonsense if you really have got the power of the Holy Spirit to do miracles which I don't believe is possessed in this uh, dispensation but if you did you could do miracles on people who did not believe who didn't have a clue about the name of Jesus and that is not uh, evident in in this world today. So, this man, I don't think, was appreciative of uh, what had been done to him. He didn't sort of grasp the wonder of it all, and I think the dialogue that continues is really showing that he was really typical of the Jewish people under the arches of the law, who had encountered the grace of Jesus and yet did not, it seems, respond as they should have done. And notice in verse 17, that when they criticised Jesus for doing a healing on the Sabbath, he says, My Father works, and I also work. So, just notice that the cosmos is not set up on clockwork, ticking away by a sort of an absent creator, who's set it up and gone off. God is actively, actively at work. And I just mention there that there is a, I think a quite legitimate retranslation available there, and you'll find this in C H Dart, who is probably one of the uh, greatest commentators on the Gospel of John, and he uh, suggests the translation, "My father is a working man to this day, so he takes "My father is working." Uh, as a noun rather than a verb, my father is a working man to this day, and I am a working man myself. In that you see the humility of God, in a sense, and of Jesus. In the same way as when Jesus appears to the two on the way to Emmaus, they think that he's a stranger. They say, are you a stranger? That you don't know what's going on? And it's not a very nice word they use. They're implying that, don't you even have any kind of extended family? You're some sort of dropout? Uh, that doesn't know what's gone on, because in their society, the only people who lived on their own, cut off from society, were people who had some kind of problem. If you didn't have an extended family, it was a very social kind of uh, setup up in their society, and if you were all on your own, I mean, you were a dropout. So that's what this stranger on the road to Emmaus, the risen son of God, appeared like, to start with. The same with Mary, when she goes to the grave, Jesus is risen and she says uh, like, hey there Mr. Gardener, where have you taken the corpse? and you know Jesus turns around and says, "Like Mary you know, I'm Jesus. He appeared as a working man, dressed in the clothing of a gardener, the whole thing about white clothes glistering and halos around the head, I mean this is all a nonsense. I just think that has the, the stamp of the divine, that that is his his humility. Verse 19, he says, The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees Abba do, the father do. And whatever things he does, these the son does likewise. And he's really, the language of Abba, he's really uh, saying that he's really just a young child who is copying and imitating the Father. And he's called in Acts several times the Holy Child of God. And the wonderful thing is that the spirit or attitude that Jesus had in his relationship to the Father is to be ours. Galatians 4, six, Romans 8.15 He has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we also cry, Abba Father. It's an amazingly high challenge that the attitude of Jesus to his father should be ours so then in the same way as God is ceaselessly at work so we should be partnering with him now here in verses 19 and 20 when he says the son does what he sees the father doing and the father shows him all Panta that he does that's alluding to Exodus 25 9 on the Septuagint where Moses makes or does the tabernacle according to all Panta that God has shown him so the the allusion is to how um, Moses made the tabernacle according to what God had shown him and so Jesus is saying really that he is Creating or building that tabernacle building up the house of God as God has revealed to him and he's saying that well the father works on the Sabbath and so do I this partnership between the father and son according to John 17 is extended to us and this for all time puts an end to any idea that our relationship with the Lord is a hobby that we pick up on Sundays and uh, as a matter of interest read a few uh, Things about Christianity or the Bible now and again during the week, and we have a social set who are also vaguely Christian. No, this relationship with the Father, this co workers, co working with the Father, which Paul talks about in his letters, this is something that grips your very soul, the whole fibres of our being, no matter your day job, your raising of kids, or whatever's going on in, in your secular life. Above all, you have this sense that I am working with him. So, he goes on to talk here in John 5 about judgment. And remember that he's warned the man he's healed that, look, don't sin any more lest a worse thing come upon you. So, the, the theme of judgment, the judgment to come, is, is set up. And he seems to be saying from verse uh, 24 onwards to 29 that in a sense in this life we have a foretaste of the day of judgment in accordance to how we respond to his word he says he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation because the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of God and they that hear shall live and the time is coming verse 28 in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, shall stand up. That's just, of course, what had happened to the, uh, the paralyzed man. He couldn't uh, stand up at verse 8, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. And so Jesus is, I think, using that, the fact that he had done that for that man. He, he's saying that, look, in a sense, the resurrection and the judgment are right now. The hour is coming, and yet it now is. If you really hear my voice, you will have your judgment sorted out, over and done with now, and you will live. And this is almost too good news for us. Paul puts it all another way in Romans when he says that, in one sense, we are sinners standing in the dock, condemned, and yet because we are in Christ, we are declared right or justified. The idea being that the judgment is now, and has happened, and is over and done with. And we spend the rest of our days rejoicing in that verdict. And it's not as if the Lord God has turned a blind eye and said, OK, you know, you're guilty, but I'll look the other way. Oh, yeah, you're, you're OK. It's, no, it's not like that. There's no legitimacy in that. That would be Injustice. Because we are in Christ, and he genuinely sees us as Jesus, because we have responded to the word of the gospel and been baptized into him and abide in him, therefore we are seen by him as Jesus. And therefore, all that is true of Jesus is true of us. We are counted as if we are him. Now, the hour that is to come that he he talks about the hour is coming, and now is. Elsewhere, when he talks about the hour, it's talking about the hour of his crucifixion. His hour was not yet come. Yet he says, in a sense, the hour is to come, and yet in another sense, it now is. The essence of his death on the cross was ongoing throughout his ministry. He said, shortly before he died, that now is the judgment of this world. In a sense, in the death of Jesus, that was our judgment, for those who wish to uh, perceive it. He was sat down by Pilate upon the judgment throne, uh, in mockery. But in reality, that was the judgment of this world. So, in what sense then do we have eternal life, seeing we are going to die? We have the life eternal in the sense that we are living now the kind of life spiritually which we will eternally live. And that's a real challenge because our temptation is to think that somehow everything will magically be changed when Jesus comes and we shall be different to how we currently are. And yes, our nature will be changed and of course there will be totally different dimension of existence. But we personally will be saved. You personally, Duncan personally. It's not that we will enter into a kind of uh, nirvana as the Buddhists like to think, where you just cease existing. Or you just emerge as someone totally new. You will be saved. And this is of course the whole wonder. When somebody dies, or when we face death, or think about our death seriously, that We shall live again. You shall live again. I shall live again. And we shall be saved. And that puts a a huge, huge importance upon the idea of personality. Of who we are. Of spiritual mindedness. Of who you are really when nobody is looking. Disciplines like what you think about as you go to sleep, as you wake up in the morning. Prayer meditation, where your heart really is in whatever secular activities you spend your days doing this is of ultimate importance and all the externalities are nothing, absolutely less than nothing so then this is all possible because we respond to his word And the word that I think is in mind very often in the New Testament is not the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including the Chronicles' genealogies, but the word of the Gospel, the good news, that those who believe in Jesus, who identify themselves thereby as the seed of Abraham, really will live forever in God's eternal kingdom, the eternal inheritance of the earth, with the the blessing of salvation, forgiveness, grace that was promised right back in Genesis and he says to the Jews the Jews he's talking to are I guess the Pharisees and the scribes who search the scriptures all day long he warns them that verse 39 you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life but you will not come to me that you might have life And I'm not in any way trying to discourage Bible study, but I think what he's saying is, eternal life is not about Bible study. It's not about verse by verse, word by word, exposition and understanding and intellectual clarity about everything that somehow will give you eternal life. That's what the Jews thought. And unfortunately, because some people have got that idea Those who are maybe not so academic, not so literate, get the idea that eternity is maybe not for them. I think of a lovely old brother who came to die um, in an old people's home, and he lamented so strongly just in the last few days of his life, when he knew he was dying, he'd run a wonderful race in Christ, but he felt he probably wouldn't be saved and kept trying to ask him why you know Uncle Bert you've lived a great life you know you've loved the Lord and he kept saying but I was never a student and he wasn't a student he just wasn't wired that way he hadn't had that education that background Bible study will not give you eternal life this is the whole point in in that if that were the case then the illiterate would have a pretty slim chance of eternity and the vast majority of believers in Christ down the the last two millennia have been illiterate people let's make no mistake about that so it is not by searching the scriptures of themselves it's not about being Bible centered but about being Christ centered that is our focus and in that sense, you will find eternal life, because He is the eternal life. And in John's letters, first of John one, particularly, he makes this clear, where he gives Jesus the title of the eternal life. Knowing Him and living and being like Him, that is what eternal life will be all about. So the focus is to be upon Him. Now, he says there in uh, in verse. 37 the father himself uh, which has sent me as born witness of me you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape you have never heard his voice ever nor seen his shape but these were guys who were searching the scriptures all day long he said but you never heard his voice now he's definitely alluding there to Deuteronomy four twelve, which Well, let's just look back at that. Deuteronomy 4, verse verse 12. Where Moses reflects, The Lord spoke unto you out of the midst of the fire, You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only you heard a voice. You heard the voice of the words, but you saw no similitude or shape. It's the same word in the subjugant that Jesus uses here. So Moses says, you heard the voice of the words. You heard a voice, but you saw no similitude. Here Jesus says, you never heard his voice, nor did you see any similitude. What's he saying? What's the point of his allusion? I think he's saying that all your searching of the scriptures, all you heard was, as Moses put it, the voice of words. But you never really heard his voice personally. Now this is a huge challenge. We may know the Bible. And you can read the Bible. You can know the text well. And never hear God's voice. And we need to take that very seriously. And we come back to a very basic question. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? That it's inspired? And we would all say, yes, sure I do. Wait a minute. If we really believe that, this radically transforms human life in practice. Radically. Radically so. When was the last time when you read something in the Bible and you did something about it? Maybe years ago, you read and started about baptism and you physically went and did something. You got yourself wet. You put yourself underwater. Because that's what you understood from the Bible. But when was the last time when you further responded to those words? Because this is the whole danger, I think, of Bible study as study. That it can make you feel very good if you are the type that's wired for it. And I guess most of us here are, are literate people. We can do it. But we shall not thereby be justified the focus has got to be on Jesus and on seeing that the life that we are starting to live because we know him is the kind of life that we shall eternally live and he he says to them not only that basically you don't get it, you don't hear the voice of God for all your Bible searching but he says you don't even believe verse 44, how can you believe who seek honour one from another, and don't seek the honor that comes from God. It's pride and self-positioning uh, in the eyes of others, which is what stops people really believing, and therefore accepting what he calls the praise that comes from God alone. When are we, since when are we going to get praised by God? 1 Corinthians 4, Then shall every man have praise of God. In the parable, The Lord Jesus is going to come and say to the righteous, Well done, when I was hungry you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. He's going to go through their good deeds and praise them. Awkward and embarrassing as it's going to be for us, that's what he's going to do. Why? Because we are in Christ and are seen as him. Now we can understand Jesus having praise of God, you you see it uh, so often. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet if we are in Christ, all that is also true of us. And so it's actually concern about how others see us. And wanting to have their acceptance. Which stops people believing the most basic truths about Jesus. And that's what was happening here. And that, I suspect, going back to how the story starts in John 5, that was the problem with the healed, the healed man. That, well, what shall I do now? I've received all this grace. He runs after the Jews and says, it was Jesus. Aha, uh-huh. thanks, mate. Right, now we're going to go persecute him on the basis of what you've told us about him. He wanted to be accepted by his society, by his fellows. And really, the call of following the Lord is not to do that at all. It's very often the very opposite. So then, just to sum up, if we really respond to the word of the gospel, the word of the gospel is about Jesus. It's about a person. And this comes out very clearly in in, in John's gospel. Um, And we don't want to be like that guy who's just waiting for a break, waiting for something better waiting for some, you know, fantastic winning of the lottery kind of thing. He has shown grace to us. And that grace, which we see obviously very clearly in the, in the death of Jesus, that grace to you and me is what should lead us to go and sin no more and to live the eternal life